candid conversations that might just change how you look at the world. Let's bridge cultures, transcend borders, and build a global family of change makers. Welcome to If By Chance. Erin grew up in a predominantly white small town in middle America, a seemingly unremarkable place. So it's no wonder she left to explore the culture of another land. What's surprising is that she returned. But what's more remarkable is that Erin is white and black and brown. She's mixed race. And in this episode, Erin shares her experiences growing up the challenges she faced, and how to converse with someone from a culture you don't understand. So I am solidly in the Midwest, Southern Indiana to be specific. Most people have heard of Chicago. We are about five hours south of Chicago. I went to school in Illinois, so that's the next state over. And it was about three hours from where I live. I went there for communications and linguistics. And then I ended up getting a chance to study abroad. I went to Japan and lived there for a full semester. And then I got a job at a company that helped expats move to Japan and was planning to come back in the spring of 2020. Did not come back. So got stuck in Japan for about a year. It was an experience. I had already had my contract terminated with the company I was working with. It was up at the beginning of April and I was planning to leave two weeks after the contract was up. I was planning to travel and do one last little mini vacation before coming back. And so I was staying in a hotel and they said, you can't leave. And then they shuffled me from where I was in Osaka to Tokyo. And I had to stay in a Tokyo hotel. Um, and I stayed in that hotel for like another six months. And then they rotated us to a different hotel. And then right before I got to leave, they put me in a hostel for like two weeks. So were they charging you for that whole time? No, they were not charging us. So I was grateful for that. The good news is that since I had been doing freelance work on the side, I still had some contacts so I could pick up some work to make a little bit of money. But it's not like I was making a full-time income or anything. I was living off of peanuts and pennies. They did provide us with two meals a day. Thank them for that. But uh, yeah, it was it was tough. Like a lot of people who got stuck abroad, nobody was prepared. There was no system in place. And it was really doing our best. And am I right to assume that you're fluent in Japanese? I've taken the fluency test. I've gotten the certification that I can be a translator. Um, honestly, my country could still use some work, just throwing that out there. But, uh, you know, speaking, yes. And so when that was over and you were back in the States, how did that feel? Oh, well, in some ways it was like whiplash. I'd spent the year being like, hey, my day has a very clear schedule. Even though my time is my own, I still have lunch at the same time every day. I have dinner at the same time every day. I go for a walk at the same time every day. And so I went from that to being like, oh, yeah, well, I'm now living with my parents, which because I, you know, 
didn't have the transition I was expecting to. So this is about, what, nine months coming up to a year of living like that? Yeah, um, it was May of 2021 that I was back in the state. So how did you manage to transition in terms of work? When I came back in 2021, I went ahead and got a normal office job Mm -hmm. because there was a hiring boom. And honestly, I was so strapped for cash because I had to pay for my own plane ticket back. And I had to do all the things to get myself oriented back in the States that I was just like, I need a job. So I went out and I got a job at a video production company working in their operations and marketing And so I started doing freelance on the side after offloading all of my Japanese clients. It was, again, really hard to work with people when you're 14-hour time difference. Oh, so you were freelancing with people back in Japan. It was small work, but yeah, I was doing little jobs here and there, usually one or two a month, just to one, not go insane, because you can only watch so many cat videos before your sanity starts to slide. But also because I was like, I can't let my skills get rusty. Like, I can't just sit around and do nothing for a full year. That's not me. So, yeah, I had a few small jobs that I picked up. Somebody who wanted a website, somebody who wanted some writing or a refresh on their existing website. So stuff like that. And I really did enjoy myself doing those things. But after I left Japan, I was like, yeah, I just don't. Not that I dislike you. I just don't feel like trying to work around a 14-hour time difference. So I worked at that job and then started doing freelance stuff on the side again, just to kind of get reoriented with the local economy. Because I was, yeah, I hadn't been back in the area since college. I was not integrated with the local businesses. I wasn't integrated with the chamber, any of that. So how is building community there going now? Um, I would say things are going pretty well. I'm really fortunate that even though I didn't want to live with my parents are in the area, it was nice to have a little bit of an internal network Mm -hmm. to kind of integrate myself. Mm -hmm. And I did kind of know some of the things that the area is doing now. So like when I left, there were no co-working spaces in the area, but there had been talk of building one. Well, now there's three. And what is the makeup of people that use those spaces? Um, well, as much as I would like for Evansville to be a more diverse place, it's still not a really diverse place. So what is that experience like, being one of the very few non-white people there? Well, I think it really depends on who you talk to and the expectations you have going into the conversation. My grandparents, specifically my dad's parents, my dad is Caucasian, my mom is African-American and Native American. And I love my dad's parents. They are my grandparents. I love them dearly. But they lived in that county where there's less than 2% of people of color for most of their lives. They are first-generation Americans. My great-grandparents are immigrants. My grandmother was born in 1938. I don't go and talk to her or any of the people who she's friends with or that are still, you know, for her demographic and expect there to be cultural sensitivity, cultural understanding. I don't go into conversations expecting that. 
they're not exposed. And honestly, they're not going to be. So I don't go into it expecting there to be that layer to the conversation. People my age, I'm sorry, I don't have patience for that. You've had Google since you were a teenager. You don't have the right to that kind of grace. (laughs) So yeah, this ain't that for me. I'm not here to adhere to tokenism or to be the representative of black people or mixed race people. That's just not who I'm going to be for them. I will say there was definitely that kind of expectation growing up. People would ask me for the black perspective in high school, which again, in high school, growing up in a county that monolithic, I didn't have answers. (laughs) I did not understand how to embrace that kind of nuance or how to properly address it in a way that makes sense. I knew it needed to be addressed, but I didn't have the tools to approach it. That definitely came with moving away and going to college and really going to countries where there's a lot more diversity to be had. So I'm not going to be their monolith of this is the Black experience or this is what all Black people are. So being mixed race, how did your mother pass on culture to you? Well, in some ways, there were things she was not willing to budge on. Like, she definitely taught me about not shying away from Black history mm-hmm. in an area where, I don't know if you knew this, but Southern Indiana used to be part of the Confederacy. So there's a lot of history about stuff like that that wasn't really, I wouldn't say it's not addressed in school, but they don't make it an emphasis. And she was like, no. We are going to go to historical landmarks. We are going to learn the history and you are going to know what it is to be black. And what did your mother tell you about the Native American side? Well, unfortunately, there's not a lot that she knows. What we did find out after going through records and talking to older family members is that My great-great-grandmother was one of the Native American children that were pulled from a reservation and gifted to a family. So what we know of her history is very little. We have found old papers of hers that show that she actually came from Ohio, but we don't know too much else about her. The paper basically states her age, where they picked her up from, and where they left her. The more we dive into that, the more heartbreaking it is to realize that that's the story of a lot of Native American girls in that time period. And I know you've spoken a lot about your background in being a Black person. Do you think that changes how you view the world somewhat, having that Native American element? I think so. In some ways, it brings to the forefront what I think a lot of Black people have been talking about in recent years with issues like reparations. We hear the argument of, well, it doesn't happen to anybody today, or it wasn't my parents or my grandparents who did it. But I'm like, you make it sound like it was so long ago. That's somebody's lifetime two or three generations back. And to hear people be so jealous about the, well, nobody does it anymore, or My grandparents didn't that. It happened before them. But 
whenever you think of it in terms of, well, that may be true, but your grandparents, my great-grandparents, they were able to come to this country and build a life, build real roots, have an established history. My great-grandparents still have records of their family that live in Ireland and Germany. They're not kind of from that. We've actually written to some of those people. You know, we still have ties there. And to know that they can have that history and heritage is nice. But to know that half of my family has none of that and will never be able to get any of that is really hurtful. And to hear people dismiss that kind of thing is, it makes it more raw. And it makes it more personal. Being dismissed, has that happened a lot? Or is it just a general, what you think society is communicating? I think that it happens inadvertently more often than people are comfortable saying. And I think that in society, it is an unspoken truth and people aren't saying the quiet parts out loud. So can you tell me more about how you feel you're receiving that message or when you're receiving it? I think I'm receiving it whenever I walk into a room and somebody asks me about my work or asks me about why I'm in a networking space or something. And I say, well, my business is owned by a Black woman. It is certified. I am part of a program that promotes teaching Black girls about STEM work. And they're like, well, that's interesting. Why do you feel the need to do something like that? You know, it's like a, you, you don't get it. You really don't see it. And in some ways, I can tell. It's a genuine question. They are asking me why I feel it's necessary. And in my lived experience, how do you not see? <laughs> you know? And so that's why whenever I say I'm not somebody's monolith, I'm not here to be giving them that Black experience, mm -hmm. I'm not here for that. Because if they wanted to see, they could. Mm. They're just choosing not to, and they're letting that choice lead them to a question that is so outrageous. Like, it wouldn't be that hard for them to know the answer mm. if they really bother to try to look. Mm. Do you think it would be helpful if the organization that you're part of would do some more in terms of communications or help you in terms of messaging? In person, it's actually a really nice experience. There is something to be said for not having to explain and it just being an understood truth of like, hey, I walked into this room and there were lots of business owners there, but I was literally one of two people who looked like me in the entire room. And to see every other business owner's face and to know that they know that exact feeling and I don't have to explain it. I don't have to quantify it. I can say the statement and everybody gets it. <laughs> you know, that feeling is actually really gratifying. And it really does remind you that you're not crazy. Mm. And you feel sane and understood. Yeah. And in an inherent way. It's not like they're, oh, yeah, I don't know what that feels like. Instead, they're just like mm, saying, I know you. I see it. You know, there is something that's very gratifying about that. And it's part of why I push so hard to try and find the group, even though they don't have a lot of promotions that they do. 
just because I felt like I really needed that kind of support just to navigate in a space where 90% of my business interactions don't have that inherent feeling. Mm. And I think, too, when you're living in a small town, things tend to stay somewhat the same over a longer period of time. If you don't have a lot of new people moving into the area, is, is that what it's like where you're living now? Yeah, I mean, things have gotten better as far as diversity, to be frank. Even though the county where I used to live has less than 2%, it was actually smaller when I was actually living there. It was closer to like 1.2, I believe, is the actual population density. And now it's at about 1.6. So there has been an increase, however small it may be. And here in the city where I live now, you know, it was closer to about 90% that was Caucasian. And now it's about 85. So there has been some change in demographic, but it's, you know, it's incremental. And it's just going to take a really long time. And part of the problem is also where we're located. We're about two to three hours away from major cities. So we're about two and a half hours away from Indianapolis, the state capital, much, much larger than we are. Why would they move to our smaller city when there's a bigger city with more opportunity less than three hours from where we're at right now? So I'm not expecting there to be this big, you know, cultural shift Within the next 10 years, even, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that it took them 20 years to get the kind of shift that we're seeing now. So does that make you think about moving to one of those larger cities? Well, I have seriously considered moving to like a Columbia, South Carolina. I have looked at places that are inherently more culturally diverse, not just because they are culturally diverse, but also because as much as I enjoy the business I have now and the marketing work that I do, I went to school for linguistics. I would really like to live somewhere where I could at least do some of what I went to college for. After all, still paying off student loans, so I may as well get some money's worth out of it. So I am interested in moving to bigger cities because I want to utilize the education that I have and partly because I do want to find a network of people who have a shared experience and not have it be so hard to find them. Yeah, I think that makes a really big difference. So is there anything that you can think of where you're living now that might make things a little bit easier? Well, I really do find that my nonprofit work, especially with the girls who are looking to go into STEM, is... One of the things that really keeps me going, they have so much hope, so much promise, and to see them be so full of confidence in their abilities to go out and just do is so great. And to see them achieve things through the program and to watch them be like, I can do it. Like, it's not even a question of can I, it's I will. And that to me is such a bolstering feeling because even if I go into a business room and I feel a little bit ostracized, a little bit othered, to know that in 10 years time, they're going to walk in that space and they're going to own it. And to me, that's, that's the exciting part. And in terms of cultural sensitivity, I know it's not your problem to solve, 
for someone who doesn't know what to say, what advice would you give them if they're approaching someone who's of a culture that's not of their own? Well, I think the biggest thing is to remain unafraid of acknowledging how ignorant you are. When I traveled to Asia, I did not know how much I didn't know about Asian culture until I got there. And yes, studying foreign languages, you know, understanding that there's a whole depth of things that you don't get whenever you start studying a language helps. It really helps you be humble in that space of like, oh, you are going to mess up and you are going to say something really stupid. Don't be afraid to say it anyway and acknowledge the fact that mistakes are going to happen. Be willing to laugh at yourself and ask people to correct you in a nice way. That goes a long way. Just being upfront about it. So I was in the store the other day and there was a, an elderly gentleman at the checkout and there was a, a lady that was serving him, a younger lady, and her colouring was not white. So the first thing he said to her was, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Australia. What do you think he should have said? Oh, that's always a fun Fun question. I love getting that one, especially as a mixed race person. I'm racially ambiguous enough that I get that one pretty regularly. I always liked it whenever somebody asked me, what culture do you identify with? And I really love that question because it opens up the fact that I can be from somewhere and identify with multiple cultures. So... Yes, I am from an area that is predominantly white. But guess what? I still identify with black culture and I still identify with Irish and German culture. I can identify with all three of those things. So do you think it was a little bit much for him to bring that up at the checkout? Do you think there should have been a bit of a conversation in order to ask someone, what culture do you identify with? Is it okay to walk up to someone randomly and ask that question? I'll say this. If you wouldn't feel comfortable with a random stranger asking you that question, you probably shouldn't be asking it to a random stranger. So if the idea of someone coming up to you and saying, wow, your English is really good. Where did you learn how to speak it? If that thought sends you with like this, oh, like pause. I can't believe somebody just asked me that then maybe it's a question you shouldn't be asking other people in casual conversation who you don't know. Maybe it's the kind of thing where you need to say, well, maybe I should become friends or acquaintances with someone and ask them in a more private setting when there's some trust built up. Because part of the reason why people don't like those questions and don't like responding to them is because there is no established relationship there. And if they knew you at all, they wouldn't ask you anyway. Like, I'm sorry. If you knew me at all, you wouldn't be asking me why my English is good because you'd already know. <laughs> Even if we were acquaintances, you would know. You would at least know where I was from. So there's no reason for it to be like that. If you want to be acquaintances with someone, if you want to be in a relationship where you can have open communication, there are other ways to build that relationship that don't start out with a question that leaves somebody taken aback and left with, I have no response or frame of reference for this question. 
great advice. And I'm still thinking about that elderly gentleman and just wondering what drives people to ask those questions. Is it for people that are predominantly white that we're being told to be more culturally sensitive and that we're just not being told how to do it? Or do you think that's just an excuse? I think it is far too easy for people to take the easy way out. So instead of getting to know someone and learning about their journey and taking the time to build that kind of relationship where questions that are tough aren't so hard to ask, because if I know you, I'm going to give you grace. Instead of you being a stranger who just comes right out and just slaps you with a question like, the heck, why are you asking me that? And so if you really wanted to know, you would connect with people. You would try to build that bridge. So when you spoke about walking into those rooms, like the business association type situations, and you spoke about feeling othered, what was it that was making you feel that? Well, I think for one, when you walk into a room and not only are you young, I'm in my 20s, and you walk into a room, it's a business association, and every person there looks like they could be your parents or older. (laughs) That's not my demographic. So you walk into a room, you're one of the youngest people there, and nobody there looks anything like you at all. You know, their vibe is different. Culturally, you can tell that if you make a reference and it's like TikTok or, you know, something new, they're not going to get it. I feel like I can make friends. I can do things with people across cultures. That's not the problem. The problem is how do we find some kind of commonality to even build something? And whenever you walk into a room and you feel like there's nobody in your demographic, there's nobody who understands your life experience in any way, how are you going to bridge this gap? They're not going to be the ones who reach across to you. You're going to have to be the one who decides to jump the gulf every single conversation. That's the hard part. Yeah. And is it easy for you to approach them or do you feel like you're being given the cold shoulder? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Sometimes I'll talk to somebody and I'll be like, my gosh, I absolutely love that blouse. It is such a nice color on you. That's a great icebreaker in some rooms. And in some rooms they're like, thank you. And then they move on. Like there is no olive branch or reciprocity in the conversation. And every time you get an answer like that, the gap gets wider. Yeah, but it's so layered, isn't it? Particularly if you're just talking about females. We like to put ourselves together in a nice way. And then on the other hand, there's this argument that it shouldn't be about how we look. It should be about what we do. And so... Yeah, If you run across someone who's very firmly in that camp, that how I'm dressed doesn't matter, yeah, it, it can be difficult. So yeah. I feel like in a way, a lot of us are battling the chasms between us. Mm-hmm. Or like my business isn't as established as yours. Exactly. So if I go out and I say, oh my gosh, I saw that you sponsored X event. It's so nice to see local business owners being philanthropic. And they're going to be like, yeah. We try our best. And like, that's all they say. I'm like, where am I supposed to go with that? Like, you got to give me something. (laughs) I can't build a conversation with a single sentence. (laughs) Do you feel like 
you're not getting much return on your time for going to these events? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Some business events are more so than others. So I went to one that was at a country club. I kid you not. I'm the only person in the room who looks like me who is not waitstaff. <laughs> like, just walking into that room, seeing all of that. People who regularly come to this country club, none of them look like me. And the only people who do are waitstaff. Just to walk into that room and that's the picture that you see. And it's just a, you know, like, we got to put our game face on and we have to be prepared for the fact that there is going to be no bridge building. It really depends on the networking event itself. Uh, I go to one that's an all-women's networking group. And honestly, that's probably one of the easiest groups to walk into and speak because... As women, we do have a lot of commonality. Maybe it's not necessarily in the same way that it would be if it was a black women's group, but there's enough there for us to build real bridges, and it's a much more casual group. Did you notice that in Japan? Well, in Japan, it's a little bit different. In Japan, for one, Japan is far less ethnically diverse than America is. It's just not, like, not even close. And in Japan... In some ways, I'm a novelty. Not in the same way that somebody with blonde hair and blue eyes is, but still a novelty. So, like, I would have kids, like little kids, elementary school kids, who would come up to me on the train, and they'd be like, can I touch your hair? It looks fluffy. And I'm like, I mean, okay. But, you know, like, there's definitely, like, this curiosity and this eagerness to understand, because to them, it is so foreign that it's interesting. Now, I will say this. You ran into the same problem with the older generations where they're like, oh, you speak good Japanese. That's so nice. I'm like, yeah, I, I do go to language school. But I will say that especially the younger generations of Japan, they are very curious. And when they find out that you're from America, even if you don't look what they consider stereotypical Americans to look like, they're so fascinated by the culture that it bridges a lot of gaps. And their understanding of black culture is so stuck in, like, media that, to them, it's very novel. Not that there isn't some kind of assumption or layers of racism that exist in Japan, but not in the same way and not whenever people see you as a visitor. This conversation has been rather fascinating. Yeah, we've done all over the map. <laughs> we have. Um now, usually when we wrap this up, I generally ask the guest what they would like or if there's anything that they think would help. But I'm going to turn that around this time and ask you if we were to invite listeners to connect with you as a black female entrepreneur, would that be helpful or would you like to see something else? To me, it's the connection I form with the people and getting to see their passion and their desire to help others through their business that makes me excited to do the work that I do. And just to get that kind of collaboration creatively is my favorite part of the work. I will say that if anyone would like to connect, that would be great. If I had to say one thing that I think people who listen to this should do, it's go out 
and find one place where you are a little uncomfortable and build a bridge to someone and cross that bridge for them. Because for the the majority of minority people in America, we are so used to always having to be the one to bridge that gap. So having someone come up to us and be the one to bridge it to us is so impactful. And it really does give us hope. And it gives us more grace for whenever you do have questions and you do have things that you want to know that you don't feel comfortable asking in a normal conversation. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Stacey. This has been such an interesting conversation. It's been one of the most in-depth discussions of my life that I've had in recent memory. Erin's optimism and openness give me hope. Too often, many of us might feel out of our depths, that we don't know how to be culturally sensitive. But perhaps we've been focused on the wrong thing. You don't know what you don't know, but we are all human. And by seeing each other as human first and looking to connect in ways that build on that commonality, we can learn. Yes, we're going to feel uncomfortable. Conversations in general can be that way. But navigating difficult conversations is a great skill to have. You can find a summary of what we discussed, or if you'd like to connect with Erin, there are links in the show notes. Now, dear listener, it's your turn. Have you got something to add to the conversation? Then get in touch via the links in the show notes. Whether you have questions, a message of support, or resources that you think might help, we'd love to hear from you. And if by chance, you know someone with a story that will inspire others, be sure to let us know. Your contributions help turn inspiration into action, drive positive change and make life just that little bit better. And if this conversation inspired you to expand your worldview, head to hellohuman.global to join the conversation. 